So we're excited to bring this study to a close. It's been life-changing for me, and I hope that it has been life-changing for you, that it has illuminated not only your heart, but your mind to God's will for humanity, his heart for humanity, and how we play a role in bringing about his will for humanity as we establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So just pray with me, and then we'll focus our attention on the final verses in chapter 4. Father, we thank you for this day. It's so clearly evident, God, that you are working to change and transform us from the life of Miss Deb Pepper to Jen Reed, myself, Father, and everyone who is here. Your spirit is already on the move, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we stand in rebellion, God, you are on the move. If the whole of humanity would close its eyes, stomp its foot, and say there is no God, it would not affect the glory of God at all. You are the eternal creator. You are the one who gives life and sustains life. We are the created. We are dependent on you, Father. And so we ask that you would bless our study this morning as we come to your word in search of your character and your nature. Bless our effort this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So the portion of today's text comes to us from Ruth chapter 4, verse 13 through 22. And you might be thinking to yourself, didn't we just hear the book of Ruth? Didn't Deb recite 18 through 22? You can never read the text of Scripture enough. It speaks louder and clearer than I ever can or will. So we will go to the text before we do anything else. So starting in Ruth chapter 4, We'll begin in verse 13. We read, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab. And to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Oh, by the way, if you memorized that portion of the Scripture at the end of the sermon today, we're going to open up the opportunity for you to come stand here and recite it in whatever translation you memorized it in, if you have that desire. So last week, last week we're in the book of Ruth, we're in chapter 4, and I don't know about you, but I literally felt like we as a group were standing there in the gate of Bethlehem as Boaz proclaimed, you are witnesses today. We were all like, yes, finally. <laughs> you are witnesses today that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, and with the land I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, to be my wife. And everybody internally was like, yes, 
The tension has been relieved after Matt took nine weeks. We have finally seen the tension resolved. Following the long-awaited response of the good news from the witnesses and the elders, we heard that the elders and all the people standing in the gate replied, We are witnesses. We have to understand that in biblical Hebrew, there is no word for yes. So when the elders and the townspeople say, we are witnesses, they're responding to Boaz who said, you are witnesses. This is their way of saying yes, because there's no word. They say, we are witnesses. What are you a witness to? They're a witness to the vow that he just made in the presence of Mr. So-and-so as he articulated and argued for Ruth and the land. The witnesses responded, May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Like the matriarchs who with their handmaids gave birth to the twelve tribes. What an honor. What a word of blessing. Like Rachel and Leah from whom all the nations of Israel descended. That's the good news that resolved the tension in the narrative that we covered last week. Can you guys read this out loud for me please? with five simple statements. Five simple statements in one verse. The narrator has once again hit fast forward. And you know me, I'm like, no! I'm a detail guy. What are you doing skipping over nine months? So much must have happened in that period of time. And you're just going to fast forward through all of it? Five statements. Boaz took. Ruth became. He went into her. They consummated the covenant of marriage. The Lord enabled, and she gave birth. I know a lot more happened in nine months than that. (laughs) Come on, dude. You can't do this to us. But he does. This single verse in chapter 4 is packed with information. I want to talk about this statement, the Lord enabled her real quick. We don't know that Ruth was barren. The narrative never says that Ruth was barren. So we ask a couple of questions. Was it Malon who was sterile? That's a good question. We don't know. Was it a supernatural intervention on behalf of God the Father who opened the womb of Ruth as He did for Sarai and Rachel and other ladies in the text? We don't know. Did God enable her to conceive because God provided her Boaz? We don't know. All we know is that the narrator gives God full glory for the conception of Obed. And this is the second time in the whole of the story, there's only two, where God steps out from behind the scenes, takes center stage, and accomplishes His work apart from the help of his vice-regents, humans. So for a moment now, we can focus our attention on the statement, she became his wife. Now, Hubbard writes that Ruth had successfully ascended the ranks of class and caste. These were systems that did exist in ancient Israel. We're not going to try to get around these realities. We're going to address them because they existed. 
The Moabite widow had moved from foreigner through maidservant and maid to, a, to, to embrace and hold the title Isha. She had become the wife of Boaz. She was no longer substandard. She was no longer categorized as other than. She was the wife of Boaz. She was just Ruth. Notice, if you look at your text, she's not called Ruth the Moabite anymore. Neil Glover sees this as a signal of new status. Raise your hand if you have life in Christ. You have a status that has been changed as well. This is the gospel of God. That he brings life from death. Ruth was no longer a sojourner. She was a full-fledged member of the covenant community. We read in Romans about this happening when Paul says that the wild olive branch has been grafted into God's special olive tree. It's not something that only took place in the new covenant. It goes all the way back to Abraham who was not a Hebrew when God called him out. Full-fledged member in the covenant community. This is a beautiful illustration of God's heart for the nations. God's heart for humanity. Yahweh, the God of Israel, had faithfully answered the prayers of Naomi from back in chapter 1, verse 9. Remember that Naomi said, may the Lord grant you, speaking to both Orpah and Ruth, may the Lord grant you rest in the house of her husband. It couldn't be the house of Malon and Kilion. They were dead at this point. This was uh, Naomi's way of releasing both Orpah and Ruth to go back to their families and their homeland. Not only had Ruth found rest in the house of Boaz, Yahweh had enabled her to conceive. We need to remember, Ruth had been married to Malon for a decade at a time when birth control was non-existent. So this, by their observation and understanding, is a miracle. The significance of this statement is a testimony to God's gracious involvement as he works to further the distinct line of descendants that would lead to King David and ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus, from Nazareth. This is why in the New Testament, when you open up Matthew's Gospel, the very first thing you read, the first thing you read is, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. The very statement that the Lord enabled her to conceive functions to remind us of Yahweh's divine plan that started in Genesis chapter 11, according to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Don't start reading about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 because he's there at the end of chapter 11. And if you read Stephen's speech, you're going to see that God was speaking to Abraham before Tyr moved him and the family out from Mesopotamia. We've got to slow down and we've got to read the text. Or else we're going to miss vital components in the mosaic that paints a clear picture of Jesus, the Messiah. So this very statement that God enabled her to conceive, it functions as a telegraph both backwards and forwards. For the second time in the book, the God of Israel 
has clearly accomplished his will with no help from anybody. It was through the birth of Obed that the Lord chose to reward Ruth for her covenant faithfulness. We're talking about the Lord rewarding the faithful. The fullness of her wages. You can earn wages in this life. For the wages of sin is what? How can we never talk about the wages being life when we're in Christ? Yeah. Why are we constantly focused on the negative? Well, you got to preach the gospel. Yeah, and part of the gospel is that he who has been buried with Christ has been raised to what? Life, new life, newness of life. The old has passed away. Yeah, we know where the body's buried. And we could dig it up at any time. But our call is to not go back to what we once knew. We're not the sow returning to the dirty water. That's not the Gospel of God. The Gospel of God is freedom. And for you who have been set free, you are free indeed. Ruth's status has been changed. She will never again be the foreign outside Moabite widow of Malon. She will forever be Ruth, the full-fledged covenant member in the family of God, grafted in a wild shoot to the true vine by the only vine dresser. How do we not see this when we just look at the Word of God? It's all over it. A woman and her influence on the writers of the New Testament. I love it. Clearly, God is faithful to those who are faithful. Clearly, His chesed functions to fuel our chesed, our covenant faithfulness. It's His covenant faithfulness that drives our covenant faithfulness. John in the New Testament in his epistle says, we love Him because... Boom! We're dealing with a room full of people who know the Word of God, which means you have the capacity to make a great impact in the city of Anchorage. So let's stop being stagnant and comfortable and let's get uncomfortable and let's proclaim the gospel of God to the lost because without us, if they don't hear, they can never know. And if they can't know, they can't understand. And if they can't understand, they cannot believe. It's our job. Let's get busy. We can do it. If Ruth could do it, we can do it. The same Spirit that filled her lives in us. Can you guys read this next portion of the text for me, please? right here in verse 14. Praise be to the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer. Schwab notes that the birth of Obed functions as the catalyst to bless Yahweh. The birth of a baby functions as the catalyst to bless Yahweh. What is happening in your life right now that is functioning as a catalyst to bless Yahweh? Tommy taught us about the vassal and the suzerain covenant in the canon series. 
This is a blessing from the lower or less than on the line of status to the greater. It's the vassal to the suzerain, right, Tommy? That's it. We've been educated. This is what we are learning, that all of it is interconnected. One thing helps you understand another more clearly. We need to immerse ourselves in this, or we will be without hope in the world. We will be without effect in the world. God has given us a function. He's also given us a call. Be familiar with Him. And the only way to be familiar with Him is to get familiar with His Word. Schwab notes that the birth of Obed functions as the catalyst to bless the God of the universe, under whose wings faithful Israelites find both rest and security. Remember, chapter 1, Ruth, we just talked about it, was prayed over by Naomi that she would find rest in the home of her husband. Chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi tells Ruth, it's my job to find you security. Boaz prayed that Ruth would find security under the wings of Yahweh, and then Ruth said, I have, now you spread your covering over me. No more temporal provision. Boaz, step up, long-term provision. Be the Redeemer. If we pause for a moment, we can ask the question, who's speaking? The women. If you read this portion of the text, apart from the narrator, they're the only ones who speak in this portion of the text. The women have a voice in ancient Israel. The women will have a voice at AC squared. Amen. Amen. We don't look down on anybody here. The women. In a world dominated by men, this scene spotlights the value of women within the community. You want to be textual? Let's get textual. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Maybe verse 14 functions to counterbalance the scene from chapter 1. If we open our minds to the whole of the story, we can ask, you know, in chapter 1, Naomi claimed that the Lord had brought her back empty. Here it is. Let's go to the next slide. In Ruth chapter 1, these are the words of Naomi. Shaddai, the Almighty, this is a title for God, has dealt very bitterly with me. Yahweh, the Lord, has brought me back empty. Was she correct? (laughs) No. Ruth was right behind her. We talked about this. Imagine how Ruth felt when she heard this public lament. Here is the counterbalance to chapter 1 when the women say, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. It brings balance to the tension in the text. Could it be that the very same women who heard her in the marketplace when she walked through the gate for the first time in 10 years, could it be that they are now reminding her that had she actually returned empty, the life of Obed would not have been possible? Wake up, Naomi! How many of us need a wake-up call? Right here. Like you said, we need to stop listening to the culture. And we need to hear the voice of God. And we need to fall in line with where He is walking. Death and emptiness had given way to life and fullness in the life of Naomi. 
When the line of David teetered on the brink of extinction during the days when the judges ruled, it was God who was faithful through the faithful. (laughs) Now, is it just me or does this portion of the story point us who are on this side of the cross toward the reality of resurrection? Just think about it. Yeah, someone said most definitely. Is that what I heard? Yeah, most definitely. Maybe it's Old Testament passages like this that foreshadow the words of the apostle who wrote, Oh, death, where is your victory? Can you imagine Naomi saying, Elimelech's line is not going to cease to exist. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. Maybe it's this narrative that prompted Paul to write that to the church in Rome. Paul knew his Torah. He knew his history. He knew his wisdom literature. It it, it informed everything that he did. Paul didn't make new stuff up. He read the Old Testament and he wrote truth in line with the Old Testament. It's beautiful when these connection points start coming together. Like Naomi, we have not been left without a Redeemer. Same words that applied to her. Same words we need to be saying. Thank God, praise God, you have not left us without a Redeemer today. Are you feeling lost? Are you feeling isolated? Are you alone? Bend the knee. Submit to God. You'll never be alone. He will send His Spirit to tabernacle in you. Never will you be alone. You may feel alone. But in reality, you will never be alone. And when you cease to exist in this world, you will wake in His presence forever. We're talking about good news. There are some people in this room who are struggling right now who need to hear this good news. We are not left without a Redeemer. But we have to ask ourselves, do we, the redeemed, understand the difference between knowing the truth and living the truth? Oh, this is where it gets tough, AC squared. Are we ready, like the women of Bethlehem, to absorb, to literally absorb the bitter cries of emptiness for those in our city? Oh, Matt, I I don't even know if I can absorb the bitter, empty cries of my own family, let alone our clan here at AC squared. And you want me to function as the absorption for the bitter cries of our city? Yes! That's the call. It's the cost of discipleship. We have a function and a purpose. We've got to ask ourselves, are we like the women of Bethlehem fulfilling that function and purpose? Only you can answer that question. The only reason the women were given the opportunity to celebrate the goodness of God is because they refused to speak out during the public lament of Naomi. That's wisdom. They refused to speak out during her her public lament. They may have been whispering behind the scenes in that opening thing, but when she went to lamenting, there's not a single word in response to her public lament. That's wisdom. You know how I know that's wisdom? Because when Naomi was angry, and when she was doubting, and when she was willfully wagging her finger at the creator and sustainer of life, nothing was said in response to her. Wisdom dictates that those who are sensible discern when to keep their mouth shut. Read Proverbs 
If we refuse to mourn with those who are mourning, we do not deserve to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. If you are mourning today, let us know and we will mourn with you. We will sit in silence. No pious platitudes. And when you want to be angry and you want to point your finger at God and you want to complain and you want to have bad theology, we're not going to say anything. Because your heart is broken. And this is the Father saying, come to me. Bring your complaint to me. I grant you audience. I will hear you. We can't fix it. But we can sit silently with you. We need to embrace this reality of public lamentation because then nothing is hidden. And when nothing is hidden, this community can function the way that God created it to function. And that's to prop you up when you're falling down. That's the only reason these women were given the opportunity to celebrate. They knew when to keep their mouth shut. It's stories like this in the book of Ruth that have the ability to teach us what wisdom looks like in daily application. So we have to ask ourselves, are we ready to suffer in silence along one another? And if we're not, we have to say, I'm not the right person, but I know someone who is. Quit being prideful. That's what I have to do. I have to quit being prideful. And I need to say, there's someone else in the body who's better at this than me. You should talk to them. I lack in that area. But God has been faithful to provide all that we need in this body. So let's start talking to one another and God will bring healing in the community. This is what wisdom dictates. In my mind, that's the difference between knowing the truth and living the truth. When we choose to stand before the mirror of God's Word, we're forced to ask questions like, do we actually desire to be more than a fair-weather friend? Am I just a Facebook friend? Does our relationship exist because social media exists or does our relationship exist because we do life together? If I see you say something on the internet, do I let it affect me here? Or do I go to you and say, help me understand what you're saying so that our relationship can continue to prosper? Or do we just make assumptions that person is being passive-aggressive and they must be talking to me. You're not that important. <laughs> You're not on their mind when they made that post. Get off your high horse. You're not that cool. You know how I know? Because none of us are that cool. <laughs> they must have been talking about me. Shut up. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. But that's what goes on in here when I see that stuff. You want to know some righteous indignation? Yeah. Yeah. Start running your mouth on social media and then come talk to me about it. Say it to my face. I live at 8510 Rebel Ridge Drive. 99504. Doors open, baby. What's up? Now you know. Now you know. Don't beep that from YouTube. There's some reality for you. Stop doing this and let's do a little bit of this. It might lead to a little bit of this. Don't get me started. God needs to sanctify me. You think I'm perfect? 
You're putting your faith in the wrong person. Put your faith in God, not in me. I make mistakes every single day. I may have just made one from the stage. <laughs> if you show up here and you plan on me being perfect, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm not. I'll never be. can't stand this stuff, man. We're not about the fair-weather friends here. Tommy said we're a family, and he meant it. And he's going to yell at me after for almost saying the F word. And it's not in my manuscript. I went off the manuscript. We're going long today, I hope you know, because we're closing out the book of Ruth. This is the blessing from the lips of the women. This is the blessing from the lips of the women right here. It's in the book. You can't get around it. It supersedes the blessing of both the elders and the witnesses who stood in the town gate. The women, their blessing superseded the, the, the blessing of the elders. How do we know that? Let's go to the next, uh, let's go to, is it the next slide? Yeah. I might have jumped ahead here, but, you know, I feel like I'm on a roll. <laughs> Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. When the elders bless Boaz, they do a local blessing in Ephrathah and Bethlehem. When the women bless Obed, it is a national blessing. It supersedes the blessing of the elders in the gate. As modern students of the text, we need to be able to identify two things. The blessing was greater and the focus shifted from Boaz to Obed. This is the only time in the whole of the Old Testament that the title of Goel, Redeemer, is not applied to an adult male. Which makes the statement very powerful when we consider the reality that Obed had done nothing apart from being born to earn the title of Redeemer. The thought of Obed as Yahweh's provision from Naomi inspired a spontaneous blessing over the newborn baby. Again, we, AC Squared, have to ask ourselves a question. Are we like the women of Bethlehem? Are we willing to speak prophetic words over the future generations? I'm serious. Are we willing to speak words of prophecy over the future generations? Or do we shake in our boots at the idea? Like it's a serious question. Do we believe that future generations realistically can grow up to supersede the work that we've accomplished for the kingdom of God? If not, we're failing. They're not going to believe if we as a community don't speak out louder than the noise that the world is making. How can they believe something if they've never heard it? And if we're not speaking it over them, they're not going to hear it. It's on us to stir them up. And I want to know if we're actually really committed to doing this or are we just faking the funk? Is today just a check the box kind of day? I pray to God that it's not. Me first, by the way. Me first. Obed would spend his entire life hearing stories about the prophetic words that had been spoken over him as a child. This was oral tradition before it was written. Obed would hear this. Maybe it was these words or words like them that would motivate him to grow up and embrace the very same covenantal faithfulness his parents did. If you're in this room and you're a child and your father or your mother just seems to be a saint until you get behind the closed doors and the stuff comes out, listen to me. They're human. But is that what dictates the majority of their life or is that what dictates the minority? You, children, have to decide. 
are our parents worth following? That's a tough word, parents. That's why I don't have any kids. <laughs> You're right, it's not. I was a non-Christian when I made a decision. It was driven by selfishness, but God redeemed it because now I have spiritual children. We may wonder, like, what we do, does it matter? And the answer is yes. Obed would be required to know, understand, and apply the principles of, his, of hesed. Remember, hesed is the Hebrew word for covenant faithfulness, and it's not translated in a single English word. It has many words that attempt to define the depth of it. But Obed would have to know and understand and apply the principles of hesed if he desired to be a restorer and a sustainer of life. This is the same terminology that David would use later in his own life when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he would pen the line, Yahweh, he restores my soul. Psalm 23, verse 3. You think David was influenced by the life of his predecessors? you consider the context of the ancient Near East, absolutely. Oral tradition. Obed would hear. There'd be no way around it. He would know, just as David would know. Of course it influenced the writing. Someone may say, well, we'll never know, Matt. I'll say, you'll never know. All of this should remind us that what we do in this life matters. Our lives they have an effect on the future. We just don't know what the effect is, whether good or bad, big or small, because we're not omniscient. But is our hope in God? Then let's live. There's no escaping the reality that Obed had some big shoes to fill. It wouldn't matter if he was hearing about his father and mother. All of it, on the majority, would be worth imitating. Both Ruth and Boaz were people of extraordinary character. Read Ruth if you're here with us for the first time. As a matter of fact, it's this very reality that undergirds the words of affirmation in the close of verse 15. Just look at it. If we are willing to consider the words of the witnesses in Bethlehem who lived while the story was actually unfolding, then it's more than safe to say that Ruth was a woman of reputation. Remember, chapter 3, I think it's verse 11, Boaz tells her she is Isha Chael, a woman of great worth. So you weigh the evidence, because it's in the text. All that you have done for your mother-in-law. This is Boaz in chapter 2. Before he says that, the young foreman in the field working for Boaz says she's the woman who returned with Naomi, left the fields of Moab to live in a land where she would most definitely be an outsider. All the people in my city know that you are a woman of excellence, Ishahael. Your daughter-in-law, Ruth, loves you, Naomi. She's better to you than seven sons. What a countercultural statement. So you be the judge. You weigh the evidence. Daniel Block writes that the reference to seven sons is covenantal, reflecting the ancient Israelite view of an ideal family. This is where things can get weird because Christians get weird when you start talking about numbers. <laughs> Just serious. Like We got to admit, there are a bunch of people in the church who get weird when we talk about numbers. Numerology. This statement, though, that Daniel Block writes is affirmed by scholar Myron Taylor who states that in the patriarchal culture, great value was placed not only on male offspring, but it was also in view that seven or eight sons seemed to be the ideal number for a family. Ideal number for the family. This leaves us considering two things. First, 
The mere fact that this countercultural expression lives on in the text, it testifies to the reality that its function is the potential capstone in the whole of the Hebrew Bible as an expression of faithful and sacrificial love. Both faithful and sacrificial love were affirmed by the Master who identified those things to be the greatest. Love God. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor. On these things hang all the law and the prophet. Second, we stand to learn so much from the language used by these women as they bless Naomi. Notice that no one in this scene imagined that anyone or anything could replace Elimelech, Kilion, or Melon. I hate when people read Job and they're like, but in the end of the book, God double-blessed him. Are you kidding me? He lost everything. That's traumatic. That would stick with him for his whole life. And you just think, circumstances change. Get over it. Who are we? Job lived that stuff out. None of the women. No language in the text prompts Naomi to just get over it. In the city of Bethlehem, we observe the support of a spirit-filled community who embodies covenant faithfulness. Naomi was never left alone to face the trauma of losing those whom she loved most. Never. She was never alone for a single moment. Can we say that about the people in our community? And to those who feel alone, the gentle reminder that feeling is not actually being. We need to come behind one another and prop one another up when we're hurting or else we're failing. We will not be a dead church. We will not. If we get there, we'll close the doors. My commitment to you, though, is to never be a dead church so that we never have to close the doors. We will walk in the Spirit. We will keep in step with the Spirit. And together we will produce the fruit of the Spirit. This is strong language in here. The Bible doesn't talk about counseling and therapy. Have you read the book of Ruth? Do you know how to read text in context? I need a therapist. You may. Therapy is important. In our family, it's vital. But we don't do therapy above the Word of God, above the Spirit of God. God uses therapy to support His work in this earth. So it's important. But it's not the highest priority. Read Ruth. <laughs> Yahweh sovereignly chose, listen to this, for those of you in the house who are therapists, because this will apply to you, Yahweh sovereignly chose to use human beings to function as the proverbial safety net for those experiencing real-life catastrophe. God is using you as the safety net for those who are in traumatic experiences right now. Take heart. It's not easy to be there. In the days when the judges ruled, it was like that. It's no different today. God is using the body of believers. Let's fill our function. It's right here in the text that we get to see how crucial a healthy community is in the lives of those who fear God. Can you guys read this for me? Let's put the next slide. Yeah, read this, please. These verses exemplify the potential outcome, in my mind, of what a community looks like when it functions as God created it to. 
the women of the neighborhood had apparently picked up Obed and paraded him through the streets of Bethlehem, lavishing their love on him. This is the ancient Near East. A baby has been born. You don't leave it in the crib. Get away, germs. In Greece, they like, they spit on the baby's face. It's supposed to ward off evil spirits. Just saying, like, they still practice that in Greece today. Think about what life would have been like here in the ancient Near East when culture wasn't influencing it the way that modern culture influences everything. Pick the baby up all the way through the town, singing, singing. Why? Because the baby's going to hear about it one day. Blessing it with words, prophetic words, words of wisdom. What starts in Boaz and, and, and Ruth's house ends in the arms of Naomi as she takes possession of the child and embraces Obed in her bosom. I'm going to be honest, there's so many ridiculous theories connected to verse 16 and 17 that at this point, it's even difficult for me to tell what's conjecture and factual. In our final observation of Naomi, we know this. We see her take the child into her arms with the goal of caring for him. This symbolizes Naomi's acceptance of a child who was born to her daughter-in-law after the death of her two sons. That's more trauma in the middle of God redeeming her. Think about what this baby represented. Obed was fathered by Boaz. Boaz was the man who replaced Naomi's son, Malon. Naomi had every reason to reject this baby, and yet she chose to love him. Naomi has been gifted with the vocation of grandmother. If you're a grandparent in the house today, you know what I'm talking about. It's a beautiful thing. Amen. Yahweh had accomplished the seeming impossible. In the final scene, it comes to a close. The women of Bethlehem are graced with a very unique honor here. <laughs> Apparently, they name the child. This is the only place in the whole of the Hebrew Bible where this happens. Think it's supposed to grab our attention? I do. It's significant. It's the only place where it happens. Following the naming of the boy, we identified the primary historical significance in connection to Obed's birth. When the line of David teetered on the brink of, of extinction, it was Obed who fathered Jesse and Jesse who fathered David. And the line of the Messiah came through David. This is the gospel of God, everybody. In a genealogical record. Can you guys read this out loud for me, please? The next, yeah. Family history is important, isn't it? I was just at a celebration of life yesterday. I had no idea that you guys would be here today. But family history is so important. We spent 20 minutes when we should have spent an hour listening to Bruce Durrell's favorite music as pictures of his life just went across the screen. We cried together. We hurt together. We know where Bruce is today. But that doesn't instantly fix us. So we gathered because family history is important and the grandbabies needed to know 
about their grandfather. They needed to see all of the people that he influenced. All of the people. And they needed to say, I want to do more than grandpa because grandpa was good at what he did, but God, make me better. What a testimony. It's our job to read these things, not to just skip over them. We need to become familiar with them so that we can make the required intertextual connections that exist within the different books of the Bible. Now, I think it would be fair to say that throughout the series, we've done a fairly decent job of connecting the life of Ruth in two different directions. What I mean when I say that is that over 10 weeks, we've made historical connections looking back, as well as we've looked at the future connections that would have affected those who lived during the portion of this story. To them, it was future events. To us, it's both past. But we've looked backwards and forwards in this capacity. So I'd like to highlight a few important points regarding genealogies, and then we'll wrap it up. First, the concluding genealogy demonstrates in the immediate context of the text that the prayers of blessing made in the gate, made at the marriage ceremony, and made at the birth, they all came to pass. All of them were fulfilled. Everyone that was recorded came to pass. So we're going to talk about that. That's first. Second, although Boaz and Obed never again appear in the context of the historical narratives, you will see their names in genealogies, but you will never read their names in any of the narratives. They're not there. However, both men achieved fame in Israel. How do we know that? It's evidenced in multiple genealogical records that can be observed in the text. You don't talk about people if they're not famous. And you don't have to talk about them all equally, but they've been talked about. Third, in the ancient world, genealogies represented an efficient and an economical form of histiography. That's just a fancy word for saying writing or recording history. Fourth, generally speaking, there are two types of genealogies. There are segmented genealogies. Segmented genealogies display ethnic relationships among families, clans, tribes, and nations. And they do this by showing descent from a common ancestor. B, there are linear genealogies that trace the line of descent from the first name entered in the categorical genealogical record to the last name entered. And when we read genealogical records, fifth, when we read it in the book of Ruth, it's obvious that some generations have been skipped over. This is not an exhaustive genealogical record. It is a terse or summary genealogical record. And it, it is that way because it conforms to ancient genealogical stylized lists. There are stylized lists. Remember we talked about numerology? Ten people, genealogical records are important. Go back and read Genesis and you will find them. Move forward, read Numbers, you will find them. Look in Chronicles, you will find them. Ten is an important number, just like seven is an important number, just like three is an important number, just like 40 is an important number. They're not important numbers to us because we don't do numerology today, but they were vital to them, and that was the context that the Scriptures were authored in. Sixth, and finally, this generation reflects the experiences of a Limelech's clan. Let's talk about that. How does this list of people's names represent or reflect the experiences of Elimelech's clan. We're talking about Elimelech of Ephrathah 
from the tribe of Judah in the land of Bethlehem. A, it's understood that Perez experienced exile from the land of Canaan when he migrated with Jacob to Egypt. You know the story of Joseph? So Joseph's in Egypt, family's back in Canaan, famine, there's another connection. <laughs> they need food, they go get food, there's this trial by fire with Joseph, and ultimately Jacob, renamed Israel, brings his family to Egypt. They're exiled, at least Perez was, from his home of record or his birthplace. B, Death in a foreign land. Both Hezron and Ram, offspring of Perez, would have perished in Egypt. This is a logical conclusion based on the reality that we believe Israel as a nation was ultimately enslaved in Egypt. They were. I was born in L.A., city of San Gabriel. You know, I'm one of the guys that's from, L from Los Angeles. I'll always be the guy who was born at Arcadia Methodist Hospital, but now I'm an Alaskan resident. If I die in Alaska, I will die exiled from my home of record. That's what that means. Both Hezron and Ram would have perished in Egypt. Logical conclusion. Oh, here's the connection. Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion died in Moab, not in Bethlehem. There's our second connection. C. Aminadab would have experienced a return from exile as a member of the Exodus generation. So whether he reached the promised land or not, like Naomi, he traveled. Remember, Naomi left Bethlehem, or went to Moab with, with uh, Elimelech and her kids. They died, and then she returned to Bethlehem. Right here, we see that Aminadab, his parents, or the generations before him, went into Egypt. But when it was their turn to leave, like Naomi, he started on the king's highway. There was no king's highway from Egypt into the promised land, but that's the connection. D, King David would embody the fulfillment of the hope of the tribe of Judah. Just as Obed embodied the hope for Naomi and Ruth in producing the offspring to continue the family line, David himself would be the hope of the nation of Israel. Why is this important? Why? The genealogical records offer us this far removed from the text, they offer us aid as we attempt to identify the redemptive arm of God's grace throughout the history of humanity. If we can't identify the redemptive arm of God's grace throughout the history of humanity, why do we put our faith in him? We have to be able to identify those things. Otherwise, he's not worth worshiping. By the way, he is worth worshiping. So they offer us aid. That's why we have to do this. James McNoan observes that in the end of the book, the author reveals that through the darkest days in Israel's history, remember when the judges ruled, through some of the darkest days in Israel's history, God was working out his plans, not just in the life of Naomi, but for the nation of Israel as well. Marin Taylor writes that the genealogical record spotlights the theological truth that God uses ordinary people God uses ordinary people every day. He uses ordinary people who live lives of chesed to bring about his greater purpose. And Dan Kent says that without a doubt, this brief story with its genealogical conclusion teaches us that the Lord raises up the humble and that in doing this, he offers us the opportunity to partner with him for the sole purpose about bringing 
of bringing about His glorious will. So as we come to the close in our study in the book of Ruth, I have one final question for everybody. Do we, AC squared, desire to co-labor for the sake of the kingdom? Or are we unwilling to live lives of covenant faithfulness? Again, only you can answer that question. You can deceive us and the rest of the world, but remember that God is not mocked. So the invitation that is partnered with a challenge is to live a life of covenant faithfulness to God first and to humanity, regardless of creed, color, religion, belief, lifestyle. We will be the gospel that people will read before they read the gospel. We will be the only means of them hearing and by faith being regenerated by the Spirit of God. That's how it works. That's how the text talks about it. So we have to deal with the truth. Are we? Are we AC squared? Pursuing our desires to co-labor for the sake of the kingdom or are we unwilling to live lives of covenant faithfulness? You hold the key to that question. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study the book of Ruth. I know that you have changed my life through it. And I pray, God, that you would change the lives of those as well who are here and those who have been with us for the entirety of the study. God, I pray your grace and your favor. I pray your shalom, your peace over those who are dealing with trauma right now in their lives, those who are sick, those who are facing a marriage that is like devolving and breaking apart, those who are angry that they're single, Lord. I pray for the single parents who are exhausted, God, and are living lives of chaos and trauma. I pray for the, the married who are overrun by the fact that their children keep them busy, Lord. I pray for the children who have to live in those homes, God, that they wouldn't define you by their parents. Father, your spirit is capable of accomplishing more than what I'm asking for. So God, I would ask that whatever it is that I'm not asking for, you would go that extra mile. We have faith that you will, but God, with boldness, I ask that you would go beyond my words and that you would see my heart's desire for this family, for this body. We want to function the way that Bethlehem functioned in the book of Ruth. We want to be a community of covenant faithful believers. So Father, bless this time. And for anybody who's going to come up here to speak and recite the final word in the book of Ruth, Lord, I pray that you would just calm their nerves in Jesus' name. Amen.